Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough. You can be tougher. Our first podcast was about three months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive selection of inspiring guests and plenty of free-flowing conversation. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie or an HBO series. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with our featured guest, Ashkan Karbefrushan. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check out their website, POIIbogain.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Ashkan Karbefrushan is the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Watch Mojo, one of the most successful producers of premium video content. The company's catalog of 10,000 videos on pop culture and infotainment are seen 300 million times each month by nearly 50 million consumers. With 7 billion all-time views and 13 million subscribers on YouTube, WatchMojo operates the 10th largest YouTube channel of all time. He is a winner of the 2015 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year for the media category. A finance graduate of Concordia University, which is located in Montreal, Ashkan started his career as an in-house finance analyst at one of the original meta search engines on the web, Mama. He then worked in the online publishing industry where he headed up advertising sales for Ask Men. After its sale to News Corp, he launched Watch Mojo, which to this day has never raised financing and has been profitable since 2011. He left News Corp and established Mojo Supreme in 2006 as an incubator, which spawned multiple projects, including Watch Mojo, a company that really took off. Today, it has media companies and marketers as clients. A prolific writer, Ashcan has written thousands of articles on business, sports, entertainment, lifestyle, pop culture, travel, and much more. His articles have been published on MSN, AOL, Yahoo, Media Post, Paid Content, and TechCrunch. He is the author of Course to Success, Everything You Need to Succeed Beyond School, The Confessions of Alexander the Great, 33 Lessons in Greatness, and The 10-Year Overnight Success, An Entrepreneur's Manifesto, How Watch Mojo Built the Most Successful Media Brand on YouTube. Ashken lives in Montreal and is married with two children. Welcome to the show, Ashken. Glad to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. And I, I got to tell you, you have been entertaining me for, for many, many years, not just myself, but my wife and my family. Watch Mojo. H how did this all begin? How did you get it? Uh, how'd you get it from an idea to now becoming one of the biggest platforms on the planet? Well, I mean, I realized when I started my career that I really liked storytelling. And uh, after realizing that I was a prolific writer, um, 
by the mid-2000s, you could see that storytelling was moving to video. And I wasn't a video producer, um, but that was the challenge, you know, how do you kind of capture stories and retell history um, as audiences were moving online. Yeah. And, you know, people were spending more and more time watching videos. And frankly, because the economics online weren't very uh, favorable, the, you, you didn't have video from television move to uh, the web. So that was an interesting challenge. And we wanted to inform and entertain audiences with a video on every topic. So our first iteration really was to basically do a video on people who, you know, people, places, trends, things that had basically shaped history, admittedly with a slant on pop culture entertainment. Um, but because it was also, you know, there were issues around rights and things of that nature, we also were producing a lot of videos ourselves. So a lot of lifestyle videos, cooking videos, recipes, tips on fashion and beauty and whatnot. And slowly but surely, you know, we started to build a big catalog. And uh, through a lot of iteration and trial and error and some lucky bounces, we ended up kind of really developing a niche for ourselves, um, you know, covering pop culture and infotainment. Wow. And where you are today, could you have seen it to become this, or is this just far beaten your expectations? Well, I mean, look, I'm a very ambitious person, very idealistic. So in some ways, you know, maybe I thought we'd be even bigger. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've obviously, as much as I think we're the unknown startup with everything to prove and still got to go out there and, you know, work twice as hard tomorrow as we did today. I mean, we obviously have accomplished some success, but I think that's more a reflection of the fact that success is relative subjective and fluid right yeah so the definition of success does change a little bit and how you measure success changes so when i actually paused and realized how many people we reach and how many people have spent parts of the last decade watching our videos then indeed um i, I it is you know it is very humbling flattering impressive what we as a team have accomplished um but, but at the same time, I think, you know, there's so much more that we could do in the next years and decade. And that's really what's exciting about all this. And as you look at where you are and you're, you apparently seem to find a way to outwork everybody. How do you do that? Where do you find your fuel? And, and tell me about your schedule. What does it look like throughout a day or through even the weekend? What's a normal day in your life? Well, you've heard that cliche about how if you love what you do, it's not work, right? So in that sense, I am both a workaholic, but I also don't really have a job, so to speak. Because growing up, I was very much interested in, you know, history, humanities, social sciences, sports, media. And I've been very fortunate and blessed that I was able to find you know, things that I was passionate about and then parlayed them into eventually what was gainful income generating work, so to speak. Um, so there was a time probably where I was working, my Lord, 18, 19 hour days, but well, was, long days. was the work I was doing. No, but, but if you break it down, the work I was doing was writing, 
which many people do as a hobby for free, you know, or the work I was doing was, um, you know, reading, you know, or writing emails that were proposals. You know, I, I will not really think that of all the jobs in the spectrum of the economy that, you know, the work that I did was hard compared to a lot of other jobs, so to speak. So at the same time, you could argue that like I, I don't work really an hour a, a day if you think about it, right? Yeah, uh, I guess when you enjoy it, you're going. It's you know, not, not really work. That's it. Now there was obviously a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety when you start a company or even at my old job. Uh, you know, working for a boss who you know everybody has their strengths and everybody has their you know weaknesses, so to speak. So that doesn't mean that it didn't come with its share of you know, stress and anxiety and uncertainty and challenges and, you know, both financial and, and whatnot. But, you know, I think you got to put things in perspective and context is key. And, you know, I definitely work a lot, but I'm also very balanced, right? I mean, I, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I have two daughters and I work with my wife and I spend time with them and love to cook, travel a lot and, you know, play soccer fairly regularly. So the point is that I don't actually work the, you know, the 18, 19 hours per day. It's just that I'm always thinking and my head is always on, but you I never really you turn it to, off. That's it. Exactly. And even, you know, even when I do, it's just, I'm, I'm, I consider myself very fortunate because I love the things that I work on. So I don't even view it as work per se, you know? Yeah. So what make like, you've done so many, I'm going to use the word cool. You've done so many cool things. Like, what is one cool thing you've yet to do? You've yet to talk to a person, a group of people. What would be your next? You said, Dustin, man, perfect world. This would be my, who, who I'd get to talk to. I mean, there's so many things, right? But I would say that, you know, last month I produced a documentary, which will be published next month. <laughs> so we move quickly. Yeah, that's pretty but fast. But eventually when it comes, <laughs> eventually when it comes to storytelling, I would like to tackle uh, scripted, storytelling as well, which I think I can't really do when I'm running a company admittedly. But I think that's one challenge. But there's a lot of things, you know, there's there's you know, there's I used to teach like as a teacher's assistant, you know, lecturing yeah, undergrads. That's, that's pretty neat, Ash. I, I, we couldn't find that about you. That's pretty cool. We'll, we'll put put that out there one day. People are looking you up. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of things that I would like to do, but there are some that are tangent to my day-to-day -day job in the company that I run now. And then admittedly, there are some that are maybe, you know, totally different, right? And, and I, I like the fact that I probably will never stop to, in quotations, work. But I also don't think that the work that I do, I even view it necessarily as work, so to speak. Yeah. It's, for, for you getting up each day, you, you look forward to it. So how many emails d does Ash get? Like, how many emails in a day... Or how many phone calls? Like, what's a typical day for our listeners around the world? I mean, I definitely get hundreds. Of, well, look, I get thousands of emails a day, but I only have a hundred-ish that come in my inbox. There's a lot that I filter that I don't really need to, or I've delegated that I know other people are, are receiving. You know, but when people look at my inbox and they see millions of emails, hundreds of thousands that are unread because they're notifications or, you know, comments... But I, I, I go through emails really quickly. And I mean, I historically used to even reply to everything so quickly. People were just shocked. But the reason for that was that it was my way of avoiding building up this big backlog. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, as I get older, I also realize, you know, I'm 41, so I realize, you know, Michael Jordan's line about, uh, you know, I succeed every day because I fail every day, um, you know, great line. But most of the mistakes that I've done are because uh, of impatience and not sitting on something and thinking about it more. So obviously, as you get older, you, you realize there's merit in not necessarily getting back to people right away. And Interesting. Thinking about things. Yeah. And, and by... 41, you still have your mojo about you, so it's you got a lot left. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, so and then there's a lot of meanings, right? And you there is. Sure. I, well, you, know, you can also get into this. Yeah, I, I apologize. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you also have to be careful because as the company grows, you start to have meetings about meetings, and you have reports to, you know on reports. And I think you know what I've learned is. Sure, as a company grows, you you start hiring people that are more process-driven and who are more, you know, organized. But you still need to also have people that are agile and nimble and could move and who are creative. And there's there's a balance there, right? And yeah, you know, so so it's 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 not obvious by figuring out that balance, but it's kind of part of the challenge of, of growing an organization. Yeah. And so how many, how many people around the, the country, around the world, content creators do you work with? So watch Mojo is about 50 to 60 full-time employees. And then we have another 50 to 200 freelancers who are at any given point, more or less active in different areas of production, be it, research, writing, fact-checking, uh, editing. Um, so it's, you know, it's a big, considering it's, I, I call it, it's the house that YouTube built. It's a big operation by YouTube standards, but compared to media companies, it's obviously not huge. But I think YouTube is this kind of revolutionary platform that has kind of changed a lot of the dynamics anyway. Yeah. Um, but, but so compared to YouTube, we're really big compared to media. We're, we're pretty small and lean. And so what kind of growth has there been in subscriptions? I mean, from the way you started till today, how many people subscribe, uh, to watch Mojo presently? Today we have 21 million subscribers on the core flagship. That's incredible. 21 million. And was there a number? Yeah. When you hit a million, was it like, wow, you hit a million when you hit 10 and 20? I mean, what does that feel like uh, for you? What does it feel like? It, I won't lie, it, it was an incredible journey and milestone because admittedly, even though I was a big, you know, we were very early on YouTube, we started an account in 2006, we didn't really focus to program and, and, you know, kind of target the YouTube community until about 2012 when I said, you know, sure, the economics are not good, but the audience is there. And eventually, you know, we had, by 2012, we had like 10,000 subscribers, but then we hit 100,000 by the end of the year, and we hit a Incredible. million on October 30th, 2013, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, and like 20 minutes later, we hit a million, and I, you know, posted a note congratulating the Red Sox and thanking our fans. And then it's funny because when I met a few months later, the YouTube uh, kind of account managers that we had just been introduced to, they said next year would be at 8 million, which I was like, these guys are crazy. Now, yeah, that's a big deal. Next year, 
Yeah, I mean, the next year we were only at $5 million, but that was still an insane growth, going from, you know, basically 100000 to $5 million in, like, a year and a half. And then, you know, we get we got to $10 million, and then, obviously, it's like any given Sunday where, like, the inches are harder to secure as you get bigger. But, obviously, when we reached $20 million, even last year, it was kind of like a mind-blowing number. And then we had also launched all these new channels in addition, so we reached 35 million subscribers now, which is just... A huge number. It's right? an amazing so, number. Like, and that's the key, right? I mean, you, it's like, we just interviewed Tom Holland's stars at, at Spider-Man, and when, when they basically said, like, at the press junket, like, oh, next up is Watch Mojo, he was like, oh, I love Watch Mojo, and it's kind of obviously these, these viewers are real, and some of them are going to be celebrities, especially if they're in movies, they're going to research their movies, and we come up, so... We sometimes forget that, hey, you know, this is a big thing now. But I think you've got to also still kind of stay grounded and, and operate as if nobody knows you and you have everything to prove. I'd rather operate like that than think yeah, we're and, successful and we, we've established ourselves. I mean, when you guys have, I mean, what you've built and who who wants to be in front of you around the world, that, that must be moments of, this is a dream and, and I'm living in my own dream. Uh, when you get there, what does that feel like? Well, I mean, I don't. This may sound cheesy, but I don't think you ever really get there, right? I mean, entrepreneurs were not really driven by material uh, things as much as people may think, and I, they were definitely not. You know, it's like when you're like the athletes, you want to win. You don't. I mean, sure, you, you need to score to win, but you don't really think of I want to score fifty goals this year. You're like, I want to win the Stanley Cup. I want to win the World Series. I want to win the Super Bowl. So for, for me, I mean, it's literally true when they say, like, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, it's not the destination. I, where am I going? You know what I mean? Like, what yeah. is that objective that as an entrepreneur, once you hit it, you're like, good, I've accomplished. It's like four stuff. I'm going to stop running now, right? So you just keep running. That's what you do. You're a runner. And, and in my case, I don't, you know, when I was younger, like in my teens or 20s, I would say, oh, I want to retire by 35. Well, I mean, technically, I Maybe I did retire. So it's just, it's just, you kind of, you do follow your guts where you, you never, it's not a question that you're not like, you don't have that many kind of like needs or wants, but you are always searching and grasping for more, but it's not more in the material sense. It's more in terms of accomplishments, credibility, success, um, you know, things of that nature. So in my sense, in that context, I'm like, well, I haven't really accomplished anything in life. There's so much more I want to accomplish. Yeah, and so tell me about the early days. How did you become Ashcan? Were you were you out, uh, I don't know, working, uh, uh, shoveling snow, raking leaves, uh, taking out trash? Like, How did you get to, all right, I'm a janitor, and, and now today you're still the janitor making sure everything is perfect? Yeah, I mean, I was, to be honest with you, I was actually quite a dreamer. Maybe that's being a Pisces where, you know, obviously I worked and I had lots of different jobs and, you know, I was eventually like a waiter and, you know, I worked in customer service when I was in college, which was a great job. Um, but I was really, I, I sometimes wish, <coughs> sorry, I sometimes wish that I would have done more sooner instead of just thinking of doing things. And then when I went to college, I kind of realized that 
oh, wow, there's really two types of people. I mean, there's many more, but at least in the context of the example I'm giving, I said there are people who do things and run because they want to do it anyway. They don't yeah. need to be told. They don't actually need to. There's no carrot or stick that is going to get them to be driven. Regardless of the subject matter, they're just going to be interested in this side. And then there's the other people who are kind of always are going to need motivation and always going to need a carrot or a stick. And so as much as I really thought, you know, there's nothing special and there's, you know, you're not different. I did see that. I, I mean, I, I don't want to lie to say, oh, I don't have more drive and ambition than others would kind of be false modesty. I realized, hey, I'm not smarter than others. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, it's like as they say, like, you've got to work hard on the field. And I just realized that I just was willing to, I was always on. I was you, always thinking. Like you were outworking them. And I, again, you're very humble and modest. You outwork people. I want to know, where does that intensity come from? How do you find it? Has it always been there? Do you, do you want to prove that you can do more for yourself? Or is there somebody not to let down? How do you find that drive? I mean, there's people around the world that go, all right, no. Did you, you didn't just become the Watch Mojo CEO known around the world. You had a drive and a fire to get here. I think all people who are either entrepreneurs or athletes or entertainers, they do have a certain chip on their shoulder to prove themselves. I think a lot of that does come from insecurities, and I think all humans have insecurities. Some of there's good insecurity sources and bad ones. Um, you know, bad insecurity is I need a bigger car so I can get a you know nicer girlfriend. I don't think that's a healthy. But hey, I want to you know do good things and help people, or I want to entertain people and you know give them a distraction from their you know the challenges in their everyday life or whatever. You know, I want to raise money for charity. I mean, there's there are good sources of insecurity, so to speak. So I would say I've basically had two types of people in my life. I've had people who really believe in me and are like, Ash, he's the leader, we're going to follow him, and he's the general on the field. He'll, you know, bring victory to our team. And admittedly, there are those who very differently thought I was a bum or like an idiot or a loser or like just to this or to that, and I could just clearly see, like, this person just doesn't believe in me. Now, whether they don't believe in me because they don't think I could get the job done, or they don't believe in me because of pettiness or resentment or envy, I think that's on them, and I don't lose too much sleep over what the source is, but it's very clear that there is this desire to prove yourself, right? And personally, you know, when I play sports, I much more enjoy the victories when we're down 2-0 and we win 4-2, let's say, instead of the ones where we blow out the competition 10-0, right? So I just think I've always had that desire to win, that desire to surprise, that desire to convince. Um, and it's not necessarily 100% healthy because sometimes you should just, like, not care and just do your own thing. But... There is definitely this intensity and this drive and this fire that, you know, a lot of people have and they don't need, you know what I mean? Like they just don't need to be told or motivated to be that way. That's right. There's three groups we talk about on the show quite often. It's the how group. How do I do it? There's the why group. Why are we doing it this way? And then in life you have the Ashcans and the Dustins who are the I got it. So I'll figure it out. Google, Google's my best friend for a reason. It'll help me find what I'm looking for. 
Uh, negative reviews. You know, you have perfection all around you. Look what you built. How do you handle that when you get a negative review or you read something online? Um, how do you not allow it to affect you? And how do you not allow it to, to do what Donald does and that strike back? I mean, look, the reality is a lot of people go, I don't care about the critics and I don't care about the haters and all. Oh, it's, it's part of it. And yeah, while it is part of life and part of success, it does bother me. Because I think some of it is people not knowing why you do things, how you do things. There's a fundamental difference between, you know, there's a misalignment and a big gap between intention and perception. And admittedly, some of that is, you know, your word and your actions and your behavior. But some of it is just people are lazy and people don't know when they jump to conclusions. So it is frustrating. Now, I will say that as you get older, and to me, I would say in the last year, this is dramatically accelerated, you do learn to just not care less, but not let it bother you as much. You do gain a certain amount of maturity when you realize criticism is part of the deal. Um, you know, it, it is literally, you can't have, you know, victories without losses. You can't have success without failure. You can't have accolades without critics, right? So mm -hmm. as I get older, I also realize, hey, I should be spending more time with my kids than trying to convince every troll on the internet why they may be wrong about a given thing, you know? And I think that's also part of the journey. That's also part of, like, maturity, where you're like, hey, you know, you could argue that you're, you know, a person is always mature for their age, but we're all humans, right? I mean, it's always about not giving in to temptation, and, you know, it's like greed versus fear, good versus evil. So... I think you have to be careful not to, you need a little bit. If you really don't care about anything, then that's not good. Yeah. It's like if you're not nervous before getting on stage or getting on the field, that's not healthy. But you also at some point do say, yeah, it's fine. I get it. They're not, they don't get it. And, you know, it's easy behind their keyboard or it's easy from their perch to just kind of bash you. But they don't know you. It's fine. That's part of life. Yeah, that's, that's the way they act. You know, you get to interact with people all around the world. What have you learned from those people, good or bad? What, what has been what have been your takeaways? As they judge you, you get to also judge judge them. What do you think? Um, I mean, there's so many cliches, but I, I actually have gone to both extremes to say, you know, are people inherently good, and then because of society or because of externalities, do they turn more bad as they get older and they're exposed to bad things and experiences that kind of makes them a bit jaded. And unfortunately, some people do turn more, you know, dark. Uh, or are actually, is it the other way? Is it that no, people, you know, inherently are bad and over time, like it's how you always have to resist temptation and, you know, evil and bad behavior and nature. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think there's like a general rule, right? I just yeah. think that... If you really want to have a well-balanced, successful life, success as a human being, as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, an employer, neighbor, whatever, I do think, though, that it's, it's human nature to at least recognize that, you know, you do have the temptation to do evil and be selfish and be bad and be cranky and, and whining and all that. But that's, that's the joy of life, to not give them to that, to, to in the end see the forest through the trees and realize how fortunate you are no matter what. Uh, you know, like well I, I like to think I empathize, you know, I like to think I empathize quite a bit, 
and, and I always think that, my God, I have so much, and, and it's easy. And again, I'm not even talking materially, right? But it's very easy to lose sight of that. So to me, that's the, the, the main thing is, you know, if I could kind of like, you know, when I got older, I went through a lot of hardship just with well, the company or the um, But I got to a point where I said, it's true, like nothing phases me. And I could see the positive silver lining and everything. So now, as I have my team that's grown up with me, and they, you know, the, the young kids I hire are going into managers, and, and they're running the business, so to speak. I sometimes see where they can give in and give into fear and and see the negatives only. And I kind of get that kind of constant teaching and learning where I have to kind of say, okay, guys, I understand why you feel that way, but here's the silver lining, you know, and if you stick to your vision, if you stick to your values, you know, there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this. And when I see them kind of change their outlook, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what still drives me. You know, obviously, I'd like to produce more content, get more views and all that stuff. But but it does ultimately boil down to the people, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. want to make sure that the stuff you've learned, you then pass it on to others. That's right. And how do you find that line when it comes to political correctness? You know, the challenge is that maybe one direction you guys want to go or some of the content you're creating and other people might disagree with that. How do you find the balance? Well, again, I personally, from a very young age, was always about balancing the point of view, right? So if I sit with somebody that's really critical of, you know, uh, Republicans, I will present a counter view because I think that's how society will actually uh, become better and vice versa. You know, if you, if you have somebody that is staunchly blaming Israel when it comes to the Middle East, I will probably counter the perspective. And it doesn't mean that I don't have any views of my own, but I just feel it's important because that's how you can actually have views that I think are ultimately, you know, make the world better, so to speak, right? So that's personal, right? I do recognize that as like the custodian, the CEO of this organization that has all this reach, you know, I am a custodian, I have responsibilities, and I have to wield that and, and set an example, so to speak. I do think we live in a world where there's been so much change because of all this technology, starting with the internet, starting with computers and then the internet and mobile and then social media platforms, where I think we're still trying to figure out, do we want these platforms where anybody can say everything or do we want a little bit of like limitations where, Hey, maybe if I want to say whatever I want to say, that might have spillovers. Right. So I think we have to be careful that we can't have our cake and eat it too. Right. So it's either we, we all have to hold back or we have to um, accept that, Hey, you're, you're probably going to hear things that you don't like and maybe, it's less about complaining, why are they saying this, and you not listening to them, which goes back to those critics I was referring to. It's a similar concept that you don't actually have to, um, you know, reply to everybody, and you don't actually have to uh, go tell people that they can't say things because you don't like what they say. Um, and, and then I think there's the issue of responsibility of these platforms that sometimes, you know, want their cake and eat it too, to say, look, we're neutral platforms. We shouldn't be responsible for what's said. But I... I personal think as a storyteller, you do have to push the envelope. I don't think you have to shock for shock's value, but I think if you really become very conservative and fail, then you probably uh, lose over time and you create a vacuum for others to come 
and push the envelope, right? Yeah. Um, but I get it. I get it that as we're more people, it's harder. You're not going to get you know a hundred people to agree yeah, or gets, support yeah, it gets why more you should or should not do anything. Yeah. It is more challenging. And then strangest type of requests you get for content out there. Like, what are some things that just make you chuckle? You go, really? That's what you guys want to see, huh? that it's crazy but like I sometimes like have a bit of a irreverent sense of humor and I have to hold myself back like sometimes for especially April Fool's Day I'll throw out some ideas and my colleagues are like no we can't do that it's too crazy and I'm like but it's a joke and it's fine you know? yeah, like, they, I won't, get they won't it. let you but the more the more kind of thing that surprises me is we are in a weird industry where youth is actually not a bad thing or lack of experience is not a bad thing because we need youth. We need people who are watching the newest shows and, you know, listening to the newest bands. Like I always joke, if I was left, I was left to my own devices, every other video would be top 10 Seinfeld or top 10 Ozzy Osbourne song, but it wouldn't work, right? So you need to be ahead of the curve and be covering Game of Thrones when it starts. You know, you can't be the last guy to cover Game of Thrones when it's a smash hit, so to speak. So I think it's more that. It's how we live in this super fragmented world where there's so much content options because it's not just the world of ABC, NBC, and CBS, and that's it. And it's more that it's just impossible to stay on top of it, right? So you have to actually give the microphone to others, and you got to let... Anybody in the room, you know, the 20-year-old intern or the, you know, the, the older guys to, to come up with the ideas because otherwise you, you will be left behind. Yeah, and I think as we continually evolve, what was popular yesterday might not be as popular today. Um, you and your team, do, do you find that there's conflict of what you want to do versus what they want, or do you usually find the Hashcans have always been right? Have there ever been ones that you said, I want to do it my way, and it didn't work out, or on the other side? I mean, I generally have never run the company like we're going to do what I want to do. I mean, I definitely push for things and ideas, but I, to be fair, I think if you walked into a meeting, you wouldn't really know who the boss is, so to speak, because, you know, there is, it's not like everything has to be consensus and everybody agrees and hugs it out, but I mean, generally speaking, the best ideas can come from anywhere, yeah. and I would say editorially, it's actually more and more not me coming up with the ideas. I think what I was good at is building a system you know, that could balance the wisdom of the crowds and like, you know, just getting people's feedbacks and getting their suggestions, but then plugging it into a production model that was scalable, that was, you know, sustainable, and that could get out good content, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, th th this only works if the best ideas bubble up to the surface. It would never work if it was just, hey, let's do what Ash wants to do. Yeah, and, and I also read that you're developing... Uh, channels or, or potentially even foreign content. Uh, by, by the way, I'm going to throw in there, uh, Life's Tough uh, Media, Life's Tough Podcast is heading to Lisbon uh, from the July 3rd through the 5th, and we've been invited to, the, uh, to talk to the Explorers from the New York City Explorers Club. And one of the challenges I'm facing going overseas is certain areas in the States were strong, certain areas overseas uh, I, I'm not as strong, so you have quite a network. Um, what do you think tapping into that network overseas will look like for you. And as we're going to be talking to astronauts, astronomers, uh, climatologists, Egyptologists, that I find that stuff to be fascinating. Um, tell me what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, in general, the beautiful thing about the web and the global nature reach is 
everything that we thought was niche and possibly small in scope can actually be a very big opportunity. You know, like if you were to be like, uh, I, I'm interested in a given topic, and um, and historically, if you were like, I'm going to do a local radio show or a local print product, it was maybe not enough people in that geographic area to sustain whatever it was you were interested in. But because with the web, you can go really deep and... English is so widely spoken, and you have all this technology that can even translate and auto thing. Any anything is actually huge, right? Yeah. So in the field you're, you're talking about, if you especially now tack on how technology is allowing for storytelling to do more, you know, there's going to be a lot more content and a lot more spotlight on that field because, you know what I mean? It's like a hundred years ago, the first movies were westerns. Why? Because you could shoot that. You could just go in the middle of the desert and just shoot it, and, and that's that was what you needed to pull it off, right? Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's, that's just more of a testament that you really do have a market of you know four or five billion people who are connected to the internet with either desktops or more and more mobile phones. So all these niches are actually quite big. And where do you envision as the next big thing in video altogether? And how will companies do you believe that? Uh we use YouTube in the future. What do you think it's going to look like? So, I think we're still, like, all of the things that are more hypish, like VR, AR, live, and I mean, those things I don't think are going to be really as big as quickly as we think. I think it's still, we are so tunnel vision that we forget that it's still relatively early and that mobile really has added four or five hours of screen time in everybody's day. So I think I think you are going to get to a point where you're going to start to interact. So there's two parts. One is I think people are just going to be constantly creating, curating, and consuming content. And the roles of those three are going to start to blur, meaning it's not just Disney that produces and Joey is a consumer. It's kind of like, sure, Disney may have created this content, but Joey is going to be curating it, mashing it up and doing that. And the lines of, you know, the lines will blur. That's one. And then two, it'll be this notion that, yeah, like you'll start to follow, watch, engage with content in the morning on your mobile, as unhealthy as that may seem. And then as you're walking downstairs and having your breakfast, you're, you're kind of continuing that on your, you know, on your fridge refrigerator screen, so to speak. And you're in the subway and you're back on your mobile, you get to work and you're continuing it on desktop. And it's just like this 247 interconnectivity that as much as people used to think that like Google Glass and things like that were wonky, you know, you have to wonder now, everybody's walking around head down on their phone. Like, is it that crazy for us to literally have embedded chips, so to speak, where we're always connected and we're kind of half tuned into in real life conversations and half doing something in the background, scanning emails? Like, when you think of like Apple's iWatch and all that, I mean, as much as that's like a scary future, it does seem like we are going towards a place where we are just always on. And I'm not saying that's healthy, but that is 
more likely than saying it's going to go the other way where we're going to disconnect. I mean, we will disconnect for periods of time, but I feel like it definitely looks like 247 connectivity is going to happen sooner than later. Yeah, it, it appears as if like my screen time every day tells me I, I'm, I'm at six hours and 22 minutes today. Uh, what does your typical screen time look like when your phone reminds you? I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm obviously on a lot during the day at work and then in the evening. But again, like I think because I like to cook and I, you know, you know, just try to be, you know, I'm not as bad as other people. But I myself recognize that, you know, one of the reasons why I definitely go out and play soccer is not just because I love the sport and I'm competitive, but it because it ensures that I'm not just, you know, on my phone, whether I'm reading an article or, you know, sending a message to somebody that I'm not on them for so many hours. When you consider that my nine to five is basically in front of the computer screen, right? Yep. Um, and I actually do think, though, that that's one of the reasons as I get older. I realize that, like, yeah, you know, if ever in the future I, I sell the business, it's because I feel like that will allow me to be a bit more, uh, it'll provide me with a bit more space. It will, like, I'll be more willing to just shut off for longer periods of time because when you are an entrepreneur, you are married to your company, whether you admit it or not. You're always on. There's always something that you have to tend to. And whether you like it or not, that means you got to be connected one way or another. Yeah, you, you always got to be online. Uh, do you think that the U.S. elections will have any bearing on your content? What do you think is going to happen? cover politics that much and I think you know while we do cover politics in more of a evergreen manner and like a pop culture iconic sense I don't think we really cover it for it to affect us that much I know that like obviously since we do rely on clips and that touches on copyright there's always you know what are the odds that copyright law changes but again I think we are such a small player, and I think the bigger issue that has moved more towards freedom of speech, you know, can a platform pick and choose the voices on its platform? I think people sometimes also get lost with, oh, censorship, censorship, when, you know, know, private companies can do more or less what they want, whereas it's more the government that cannot necessarily, you know, censor you. So I, I don't think we are as exposed to that as, say, the CNNs and the NBC of the world or the Facebooks of the world. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if, if your big neighbor sneezes, it's going to affect you one way or another. It's going to impact everybody. All right, because we went over our allotted time. Final question for you, Ash. Uh, who's the toughest person you've ever known? The toughest person I've ever known? Toughest person. Honestly, I, I, this is not a cop-out, but I would say my wife, which sounds weird. I, I don't think that's weird. Two. Yeah, it sounds weird, but it's, she's also five foot two, and you think she's this little thing that, you know, you can snap in two, so to speak. So she, for one, I always go, did not necessarily um, sign up to be an entrepreneur. And because I decided to pursue this, kind of came along for the ride. And as much as it's tough to be an entrepreneur, it's really tough to be an entrepreneur's wife. But it's also that she's not just my wife. She's also one of the co-founders. She's basically today the president and editor-in-chief in the business. You know, we make a great team. But it's, what I see her 
doing what she does, the way she does it, the questions she asks. Um, she is the most, she has the best judgment of any person that I've ever worked with in business. And so I would say she's probably the toughest person I know. Um, and, and, you know, like, that's saying a lot, like I said, because she's a five foot two petite gal, but uh, she's, she sounds pretty awesome. The way you're talking yeah, about her and, and describing her, go like, I'm married. I tell you, my wife is my co-founder for Life Stuff Media. Uh, she got into this crazy thing with me that started with, hey, I just would like to talk to people. Like, bring them on and steal their secret sauce. And then we had Evander Holyfield on the show. Then we had the founder of Priceline on the show. Then we had the Chicken Soup CEO. And then we have Wyclef. And we have Ashcan. And, and she's been there through, through all the nuttiest. So I, I respect the fact that of all the people you've met in your life, of everybody you've ever known, and she never would have heard this tape, and now she's going to hear it, is that life's tough, but Ashken's wife is tougher. There you go. All right, Ashken, any final words uh, for the listeners? No, just thank you very much for the kind words. And, uh, you know, it was nice chatting. And I think, you know, sometimes when you have this conversation, but also puts everything into context and sometimes you're like, why do I do this or why did that happen? It does kind of bring it all together. So thank you for your time. All right. Well said. You already know life is tough and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to C-G-R-U-N-D at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com to learn how Carl can help you get tough on business. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. And thanks to you, our amazing audience. For making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant, engaging, and fastest-growing shows around. Also, a special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough's chief writer and my Sherpa. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. Instead, I ask you to use your story to empower others. Your story may be just what it takes to help somebody in your circle or perhaps in our community, to get through a tipping point moment, an instance in when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show, visit lifestuff.com, and be sure to join us every week for a new stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story, and every story has a purpose. Life's tough, you could be tougher. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. And for the entire Life's Tough team, This is Dustin Planelt signing off. Remember, life's tough, but Ashkent's wife is tougher.